Welcome to the journey of an esthete, a comprehensive examination of all things aesthetic, the arts, the humanities, and what it means to be human. We're doing good. Uh, Carrie and Lily, I'm going to do a brief introduction just so folks know who you are or something about you. Okay. Uh, yeah, welcome to Journey of an Esthete. And uh, on this uh, podcast, uh, like, a, like a lot of our guests, I have to say, you're someone who does a lot of different things. The people that come on my show are versatile and they excel in a number of areas. So in, in that sense, you're true to the spirit of this show. And according to my information here, Carrie, you have worked as a coal miner. Uh, you are a minister in the Methodist church. You went to seminary as an older adult, correct? And, yes. and you're a kettle drum player. And kettle drum. Yes. Drum. Okay. And, and you uh, ran a music festival for many, many years. So again, the, that's a that's a lot that's a lot of accomplishment uh, and what diverse uh, aspects of life and um, usually I guess what we do on here is I do a, a kind of a linear chronology so you know starting from from earlier to later and sometimes All right. sometimes when you do linear things that way nonlinear things will start to happen they'll come up you know in terms of what comes to your consciousness so right. where did you want to begin I guess. Uh, in terms of uh, your your younger life and up till now, uh, well, uh, I, I guess I could start with uh, Mitch. How I started working in a coal mine at the age uh, nineteen. Wow! And, what year did that uh, been? That was uh, I actually worked part time in the beginning of nineteen seventy three. Wow! And and I went full time in the fall of seventy three. Wow. So you were, and where did you, had you come from in terms of geography? Well, I'm, I'm originally from the southern part of West Virginia. Okay. And uh, I lived at, at that time in northern West Virginia and worked uh, in coal mines uh, predominantly my whole career in uh, northern West Virginia and, uh, and sometime in uh, in uh, southwestern Pennsylvania. Wow. It's very, it's, you're the first person on our show um, who's done that kind of labor. And I'm really curious, uh, if you don't mind spending a little time on those years, and just for, for people that may not know, um, you know, of course, coal mining is a very, um, it's a very newsworthy occupation. 
and there's a lot of history there. Um, what what was your, what was your very first time underground like that? Take us back to what what that was, what, how you trained for something like that, or you know, at the age of nineteen. Um, you know, I, uh, I I started in a, in a small coal mine, and like I said, as a part time, I would just uh, I would work when someone would miss work, and would have an opening for me to fill. And so I basically had very veteran miners who guided me, and and at that time, uh, the older miners took it upon themselves if you showed a desire to learn uh, and to work that they would kind of take you under their wing and train you. And I was very blessed to have some fabulous uh, miners with many years' experience yeah. who uh, taught, me, taught me the ropes and uh, uh, showed me a uh, safe way to do things, the right way to do things, and uh, also taught me to, you know, to work. So when you say teach you to work, you mean more than the, the technical aspect of dealing with the earth? And the, you mean also, I guess, I suppose, a um, a work ethic as well, right? Or a, maybe a kind of discipline or... Um, uh, well, the, the, the truth of it is in the coal mine the industry, uh, you know, uh, there are a lot of hard workers. Yep. And... Uh, and so, uh, and a lot of people are second, third, fourth, and fifth generation miners. Mm-hmm. So, as the old age goes, it's in your blood. My father uh, worked uh, eight years in an underground coal mine, and uh, of course, I had friends and relatives, and I grew up uh, on the edge of a coal mining town mm-hmm. uh, called Good Rogers, West Virginia, and I grew mm-hmm. up in Ravencliff, West Virginia, and... Uh, my first doctor's appointment was at the company doctor. My first haircut was a, a company barber. barber. And uh, so, you know, I, uh, I've been through the whole, you know, that kind of that whole regimen. So I guess as, as, a, as a teenager, I guess your eye was, was, eyes were set on doing something in that, right? I, I, would, I would guess. Is that something that you... <laughs> Actually, no. No, my my mother was the first person in her family history to ever become a college graduate. Oh wow! And it was my it was my mother's desire that we would all go to college. Yep. And uh, and and get a degree. My mother was a teacher, taught Spanish and English, all three, and uh, she spent her life uh, living and loving her students, and you know sharing their lives and her life with them and uh, great inspiration. However, I went over to college and, and like a lot of people, I kind of got lost in it. And uh, so so I decided rather than waste time and money that uh, and in West Virginia, you know, the better paying jobs were called my own jobs. And yes. uh, so after I dropped out of college, uh, that, that led me to... Uh, to work in a coal mine. I, I actually started, I worked in a glass factory in the day and I worked in a coal mine in an afternoon shift when I got to work in you know, a part-time miner. So did working in the glass factory, did that prepare you for certain things about working as a miner? Or were there similarities in what the job's called for or, or, or were there differences or? 
we're, you know, I, I think in the work ethic, the, uh, you know, the reality of, of, of learning to show up in the glass industry, a lot of people just didn't show up or showed up impaired. And, uh, and that was a sad mark on that industry. There were a lot of good people, but, uh, yeah. But I, I just, I could, I could learn. I actually saw some good role models and good hard workers, <laughs> and I saw some that would not be good role models. Do you mind taking the time to mention, of course, without mentioning names, uh, an individual in each each category? You know, somebody that you said, "Oh, I, I want to be like that person." So somebody else, oh. you're saying, "Oh, that's that's something I don't want to follow." I'm just two examples that come come to your. Your, your consciousness there about that. Right, right. Well, I, I grew up in a, in a small community, and a lot of my neighbors were my neighbors, and my father was disabled, so some of those neighbors who were my neighbors kind of took me under their wing, took me hunting, fishing, uh, you know, kind of, uh, you know, they were community fathers to me in a lot of ways, and so Guys like one gentleman in particular, uh, Sonny Schumann, uh, his uh, his role model for me was a, a good family man, a hard worker, uh, cared about his community, cared about you know other people, and always had time for everyone, no matter what your age was or no matter anything. He always had time for you. Well, that's good. I mean, that's important to have that. Um... Yes. Well, so you, what? Do you, what can you tell me about your very first time in the earth like that? Well, my 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 first time going underground as uh, as a brand new miner, uh, I I went underground. Uh, it was, you know, we had the type of mines that you walk back into the hill, so those are called drifts. Hmm. And versus some some mines or shafts that go straight down like an elevator, but these were drifts. Huh. And I was I, I was actually working outside, and the mine was only underground about a thousand feet. And a guy called me on the mine phone, and he said to me, he said, "We need you to come in here and help us hmm. just pull the belt in." And uh, the belt line was what brought the pull out. Mm-hmm. And so I walked back in there that thousand feet. Now he could see my light, I could see his, but I was literally walking by myself. Wow. And for that for that thousand feet, you know, it was a new world. And uh and I helped do they just needed more hands and I helped do what they needed me to do and then they sent me back outside to do what my you know, what I was doing out there. And so that was my true first experience. My when I went to work full time, I went to work in a mine that actually started in the, in the early 1900s. Right. And this mine, this mine was huge underground. It was it was the size of uh, of say a 40,000 population city above ground. It was that size underground of you know in terms of space. And uh, this mine was full of rich history from back in the early 1900s, and uh, a lot of that part of the mine was still standing. And uh, I had the privilege of working with a couple of uh, gentlemen there who who really took seriously 
uh, training new new miners, young miners, and the term we had back then was, and still is a term today, called Red Hat. Okay. And uh, Homer Hickam has written a book called Red Hat, and uh, it's a uh, it's a you know, real I, good. Uh, I've heard of that book, uh, but I have not read it. That's on my to read list. Believe it or not, if you can believe that. Well, I it's a great story. Of course, Home Hickam grew up as a coal miner. Yeah. Of course, he was with NASA and, had, and did the, the move, the book Rocket Boys and all. And so, he, you know, he actually worked in a coal mine as well. But the Red Hat Miner was basically subservient to any Black Hat Miner, which a Black Hat means experienced. Okay. And so the miners have a good sense of humor. So sometimes they would, there would be some good-natured jokes and, uh, you know, sometimes the guys, you know, uh, especially if you showed a certain vulnerability, it could be kind of cruel to you a little bit. But mm-hmm. what, they were trying, what they were trying to do was, was make you a good miner. Ultimately, that's what they were doing. So you're 19, it's, it's say 1972. As time goes by, when did you start feeling like you were a part of it or, or like this was something that you really – had under your hat or under, you know, you really started to see, you started to see things in a different way so that you could say, I know what's going on inside this earth in a way that somebody without that experience would be, you know, would be ignorant, wouldn't know anything about it, but you were starting to learn and know, get a handle on things down there. When did, when would that start to happen? You think, uh, you know, by, by, by 1975, after about three years of working in and uh, in underground mines, I was feeling a like it was at home, and b, you know, I realized with every day, the more you learn, the more you need it to learn. Mm-hmm. And so, so it's uh, I always talk younger miners who worked under me. The day you think you've arrived is the day you're in trouble. Uh oh, yeah. You know, so so you know, I mean, keep your mind open, keep your eyes open, your ears, and and just because we've always done it this way, maybe tomorrow it's not going to work. And so there's uh, there, and I had a teacher, uh, and he was pretty much a mentor. His name was James Zirk, and it was uh, spelled S I R K, and he uh, James he Zirk, like bring, yeah. I know that name. Yeah. Well, it's a familiar name, and it's a it's a uh, it's a German name, and uh, right. he took great pride in being a a, a great miner and uh, teaching young miners, and uh, he used teachable moments. You know, he didn't maybe know that in his vocabulary, but he certainly knew and knew how to use them and use them well. And between him and my brother. Charlie, who is five years older than me, and he'd been working in the mine since 1970. Those uh, those two were my mentors and my co-workers. And of course, my brother and I were great friends as well, but uh, I was shaped by some really great miners. And uh, so I felt at home. I, I, I probably, I, you know, the old adage, uh, uh, Coal mining kind of gets you, and you get it, and it gets you. And uh, I, I worked as many hours as I could, and I, all the time I could. And uh, 
I wanted to see and learn and do everything. I didn't want to lay back. I wanted to. I wanted to know the whole gamut. Mm-hmm. Would you say that at that time you were developing uh, knowledge that a lot of people walking above ground don't know, like maybe geological things or things about I don't know about oh, energy or what kind of things were you learning from this experience uh, that was important to you? Well, you know, one thing that I did learn, you know, when I was in high school, I thought, who's ever going to need algebra? Who, you know, who's going to need this math? Hmm. Well, I tell you, you need a lot of it in coal mine. You use algebra you know, you need, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you, you need math. You need uh, geography. You need uh, geology. You, you know, all of those things play a part. And, of course, you know, we're, we're, we are, you know, we're working on the underground mine. You are battling daily nature, underground mm-hmm. nature. And and the old adage is, is we humans never win. Yeah, it's true. We yeah. just we, we just get you know, we figure out, out how to get through today. And Mother Nature always has found the last fact. word. Right? Mother Nature has the last word, I think. Yeah. That's right. That's exactly right. Well, and uh, and so when you think you can define nature then, you know, you, you've got to come up with ways. So we, ultimately, we're underground taking the coal out from under the rock. Huh. And then we have to support we have to support that rock so that it doesn't fall so we can keep going back in the mine. Mm-hmm. And, and, an old friend of mine used to say, uh, he'd say, you coal miners are always defying gravity. Huh. <laughs> so if you think of it like that, he was very true. In, in what sense? So, so you saying you're saying you're at, uh, as a kind of a battle. So, what were some of the um, adversarial uh, things you had to deal with? Or they um, again? I'm I'm not a scientist, and I'm not you know. Uh, what were some of the typical challenges you might say that you had to just to name a name a couple that you can mention? Well, uh, the roof, uh, the roof in the coal mine that. that you know, there in the coal, you've got your coal seam, whatever the thickness of it is. Mm-hmm. It could be, you know, three feet to five feet to ten feet, you know, depending on what seam it is. And so between the coal you take out, then you have the, the roof above and the floor below. And dealing with the roof is something you have to do immediately. Roof bolting started uh, during my career. It really was a, was a new technique. Uh, fairly new in uh, in the early seventies, and then we started using uh, a type of uh, glue. Uh, we drill holes, put a bolt in the roof with this glue, and basically, what that glue would fill in the cracks and would hold the roof up. Hmm. And that was, you know, and that that was uh, for many older miners they had struggled with that because it it defied logic. But previously, uh, wood had been used. Uh, Timbers and beams, uh, all wood or cribs, and things like that to hold the roof. So you know it was a, it was a dramatically changing the industry in the early seventies, and, and some mines in the sixties had had gone to those. But it was mm-hmm. in the smaller mines it was just coming on in the seventies. And so you know dealing with the roof and in the floor conditions of the mine, which a lot of the mining takes place at water table level, so you're always dealing with water. You know, sometimes the water 
comes in uh, through the floor or through the roof or through mm-hmm. the coal and may, maybe sometimes an area four feet high is filled with two feet of water and you're walking in there, if you can imagine walking bent over because it's over four foot high and you know, you're bent over, your face is about six inches out of the water. Huh. And, and your boots and your boots are full of water, and your clothes are wet, and uh, so it's almost like you just start. It's almost like like having to work in in kind of a flood conditions, or or uh, sounds like. Right, and it can be, it can be, and huh. you know, some mines are are, are drier, some mines huh. are wetter. I've been in both, and uh, but you know, that's again, those are the forces of nature. Yeah. That that you know you deal with, and uh, as you as you learn good mining, you you have a plan to deal with water. You have a plan to deal with a roof. You have a plan to, to deal with the, if your your floor becomes uh, bad, uh, with, you know, and you can't get the equipment you know in and out because of the floor being so bad. And so uh, you know you you know you have to come up with plans. And, and sometimes the best plans, you know, don't work out. You got to come up with a plan B, C, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Is that? De- I guess that's decided on the, mo- in the on the moment in the moment, right? The plan B or plan C. Yeah. Right, right. In in larger minds, you know, you might have somebody else making that decision above ground and giving orders for what you to do, for you to do things underground. Huh. But ultimately, it's, it's the people underground who carry it out. And you know, what maybe someone said, do it this way, winds up not working. And you have to be innovative, creative enough to figure out a better way to work. And, and my mentor, James Zark, always said, uh, you know, he believed in the, and, and it was an old West Virginia term, uh, a pumpkin head. You know, he said, and I'm always the pumpkin head, you know, okay. meaning that I might not be, yeah, yeah, I'm, I might not be the smartest guy, yeah. but, but but the two of us together, we can make it work. Huh. And, uh, you know, that, that was how he trained me, is I'll always be listening uh, for other people's suggestions, their advice, and it doesn't mean you always take it, but, you know, don't ever turn a deaf ear to someone who's trying to help out. Yeah, don't turn a deaf ear to someone who's, who's trying to help out. That's it. That's. Um, I'm going to ask a kind of a naive question. What parts of the United States were you powering, or what? That the area you were working. Hmm? No, our coal, uh, our coal predominantly went on either the uh, uh, to the Pittsburgh area or on the Ohio River. Okay. Uh, we we fueled uh, Harrison Power Plant. Fort Martin, uh, Samus in Ohio. Uh, our coal was uh, steam coal predominantly, so n- not much of our coal ever went for making steel like in Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. But we fed we fed uh, power plants that, like Duquesne Light and made power and then made steel, you know. So, uh, and our coal, our coal even, uh, some of our coal even went to some college campuses that were still burning coal back in the uh, 70s. 70s, 80s, and even 90s had a couple of, uh, you know, a lot of universities burn coal to, to for affordable energy and, and, you know, use it for steam and so on for heating. Everybody needs an anchor in life. You, me, just everybody. 
Anchor made this whole show possible. I'm immensely grateful to them. You too can use Anchor to make your own shows and create your own vision. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. What was happening in your life outside of the mind? Now, I know that your, your, your mom was still involved in teaching, I guess, high school, right? Yeah, she, she taught until the late 70s. I was, I was born when she was 40, uh, 40 years old. So, you know, mm. she retired at like 65. Okay. But uh, my father was disabled at age 50. Huh. And he was 45 when I was born. Hmm. And so, you know, we were, we, you know, we were trying to, we had been farming family. I, my dad left the barns to run the farm and, and we had 3,500 chickens. We sold eggs oh, wow. uh, all over Southern West Virginia. And we had a big garden and we had, a, I, I tell everybody it was a precursor to Walmart. It was the, uh, huh. the, uh, Lily, the Lily General Store in Ravencliff, West Virginia. We sold everything from meat and canned goods and clothes to mm-hmm. boats and motors and, and hardware and whatever if you need that my dad could get it. Huh. So I guess that so I guess you have a farm experience as well as mine experience mine experience. Oh like. absolutely. I uh, wow, I, I did not uh, know this. So you growing up growing up with uh, Having uh, chickens as you know, thirty five hundred at a time. Huh. So you know, we we eat chicken every day and eat it, and eight eggs every day and eat them, and uh, and you know, we all worked. I was when I was uh, you know three four years old, I was gathering eggs. Huh. So that's above ground, obviously. Yes. And so then you're going mm-hmm. underground. So in a way, you're really learning about the planet Earth, and I think if you think about it. And things. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You're learning about how <laughs> how things work and put uh, put together. It sounds like. Yes, yes. And again, you're dealing with nature, you know, and learning how to, you know, how how to to uh, take care of your your chickens, and you know, learning how to deal with people and going on deliveries with my father and. Uh, you know, doing all all the things that you would do run the business. You know, and, uh, and I uh, later on, I was in elementary school. I did a 4-H project where I had my own chickens for a while, and uh-huh. and uh, did that, which was a great training, and I was always a great supporter of 4-H. 4-H is something when when I when people mention 4-H, they think of the 50s or 60s sometimes a little bit. Right. Um, absolutely. Yeah. And it's more in rural, rural areas, and West Virginia was there, and it probably still is now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I guess one of the things I'm wondering is you've done so many things, and and yet in the midst of all this, you, how did you, uh, I guess, how did you end up, if, if you want to speak more about mining, you certainly are welcome to, because um, I'm sure there's more to the story there, but how did you end up? Going back to to, to to seminary and and becoming a, a, you're in the Methodist Church, correct? Correct. So what's the yeah. what's the journey from one to the other? Was it sort of more overlap, or you can talk about what um, happened there? There's overlap, of course, you know, for me and everything. And uh, I was I was raised in a Christian home by. 
My dad was a Sunday school superintendent. My mother taught Sunday school. Mm-hmm. I spoke youth to youth. Uh, you know, growing up in, in rural West Virginia, you know, the church was a, was a social spot as well. You know, we had, you know, uh, gospel scenes. And, mm-hmm. and we, you know, we had dinners outside and this, that, and the other. And it was kind of like, you know, it's kind of the only thing happening in our community. So, yeah. Uh, that was just that was just part of our life, and uh, grew up in a, in a small rural church. And of course, I once I became a teenager, I kind of stepped away from that. But there was always something tugging at me hmm. uh, about my roots, my you know, where, where and my, my faith hmm. uh, journey might might have taken a lot of other turns, but there was definitely a journey going on. Hmm. I, uh, my my father. Uh, Three weeks before his death, urged me uh, to to consider becoming a, a you know a full believing Christian. That I that mm-hmm. uh, he would like to spend eternity with him in heaven. That he knew he was going to lose him. And uh, and three weeks later, he died. Mm-hmm. And uh, some of those last words that he and I spoke to each other, uh, you know, kept echoing in my mind. Mm-hmm. And, and then we had a couple of bad things happen at coal mine. We'll come back there. Uh, that caused me to start looking for answers that I didn't have. That was that was beyond me, beyond my hard work ability, beyond my. Mm-hmm. And uh, we we had a couple of accidents that really caused me to do a lot of sun searching. And uh, do you mind mentioning what those events were, or what the period of time were? Uh... This would have been. Uh, you know, those were two of the very saddest days in my American career. But there's been, there's uh-huh. been several of those, I would have to say, but, uh, you know, a person lost his life in mine that, that, that uh, you know, I was part of. And uh, about a year later, another person lost his life. And, uh, you know, both were tragic. Uh, both were great guys. And, Mm. And you know, it puts you it puts you on a more of a downward spiral when you think about the finale of death and, uh, mm-hmm. and, all, and all the hardships. And it was tough on us all because we were a smaller operation, and everybody you know, everybody was uh, taking it hard. And mm. you know, we were all we were all looking for answers. And uh, you know, uh, stopping being a man for me was not one of them. I I just I needed to find peace, and uh, that, that put me on a journey, mm-hmm. uh, uh, which which became, you know, led me to faith in Christ. Mm-hmm. So I, I I I guess I took the form of you going back to schools, uh, some a kind of school, right? Right. I had because I you know I did not finish college when I dropped out. I. So when I, I started attending church and I mm-hmm. I felt this, uh, this tugging in my heart to do something more that mm-hmm. God was, was was leading me somewhere else and uh, mm-hmm. and so truth truth of it is is uh, in our United Methodist Church mm-hmm. um, we you know education's valued and so I I went back to college at night. Excellent. And took night courses. Worked what? in the coal mines in the day. Oh wow! So you're you're mining in the day, and you're taking in the night. I guess you're reading 
I, I guess you're, I guess at night you're reading Augustine or Kant. I don't know what they what you were t- learning, but whatever they were. Well, yeah, I I did religious studies classes, but I also had to do core classes. Okay. And and I got my my bachelor of arts from West Virginia University. I had also taken a uh, an associate in arts from uh, Liberty University in Bible. Mm-hmm. And so I, I had that, which was a two-year, and then I got my four-year degree from West Virginia. And uh, uh, and uh, I have to say that God led me to Asbury Theological Seminary in Wilmore, Kentucky. Mm-hmm. I didn't know where it was. I didn't know what it was. Mm-hmm. I didn't know anybody that attended there, but it came on my radar. And uh, I went there and uh I started serving churches when I was going to seminary, and actually finishing college, I started serving uh, what we call student pastorate, mm-hmm. and uh, so I started serving these churches while I was learning, and and uh, and at Asbury, I had opened uh, the world up to me. I met people from all over the world, mm-hmm. uh, fellow speakers. Uh, Speaking at chapels, teachers who taught all over the world, uh, folks who had sat under teachers like Stanley Jones. Uh, I got to listen to Bobby Zacharias, who just passed away a couple of weeks ago, who's a great uh, uh, biblical scholar. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I just had all this immersion and all this learning, and, mm-hmm. and I was able to go back to my little churches in West Virginia. Mm-hmm. Even though it's school in Kentucky, but I went back on the weekends with my family and I, and uh, I was able to take what I was learning back, you know, and and put right to use, you know, basically mm-hmm. in my in my real lab. <laughs> what are some of the favorite things you encountered in terms of texts? Because I imagine you had to learn some canonical things when you were at school. What uh, you know. Uh, I, I have to say, uh, of course, you know, all, all the teachings of Jesus mm-hmm. are, you know, are, uh, are certainly in my heart. I, uh, I, you know, I did uh, a lot of work in the Old Testament, and it was hard, the prophets mm-hmm. and so on, but yeah. there's so much to gain. Uh, of course, the Psalms and the Proverbs have always been special to me. I, I guess the Book of Romans... Mm-hmm. Book of Colossians would be my two favorite New Testament books. Okay, and the Book of Acts, and the Book of Acts, I'd be my Acts, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so you you started, I guess you were student pastor at first, right? Right, right, right. And that's a, a category in Baptist Church, and you you know churches take that as a mission for them to help someone who's going into ministry mm-hmm. to so you can, you know, make a, a quasi living, you know, not huge salary or anything, but but it gives you an opportunity to serve and learn at the same time. And uh, the West Virginia Annual Conference, you know, my church was very gracious to me. I served fabulous little, little churches in in the Huntington area of West Virginia, West Hamlin, West Virginia, Newburgh, West Virginia, uh, all you know, smaller congregations, and but uh, people with big hearts and uh, lots of love. Yeah. Uh, so your first, um, 
I think your, your denomination is distinctive because of the doors, correct? Well, I'm not You're, sure. I'm about the, the, red, the red flame on the door, is this, am I correct about this? Well, actually, probably no. I, I guess our, our, our denomination, uh, you know, when, when John, John Wesley and his brother Charles, it really was it was the Church of the Common People. And, uh, right. The circuit, circuit riders went through places like West Virginia, Mm-hmm. And where I tell it, they would preach, you know, here today and next week, 20 miles away. And yeah. So on. And, and, you know, most of them had short lifespan. I think the average age of those circuit riders in those days was in the 30s. And they paid a high price for, you know, for you know, riding out in the cold. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, you know and have a lot to eat. And, uh, they might they may show up tomorrow for each other's news and maybe there'll be people there, maybe there wouldn't. And uh, so, you know, a lot of people the uh, the blood, sweat and tears of a lot of uh, faith feeling people mm-hmm. you know, carry that through and push you know, make men like this today, uh, for for better or for worse. But mm-hmm. uh, but but our history really being with common people and mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and being able to all, like, you know, the, the, uh, the young Methodist church was, was, you know, late in doing that, but still early in, uh, in my Christianity, I've been involved women in ministry, and mm-hmm. my my pastor that I came to faith of was a female minister named Betty McBee, and she taught me what I say is the Lord Jesus. I I heard people talk about Jesus, but mm-hmm. he showed me that love. Mm. And uh, and that's uh, the gospel was given to me, you know, through, through one pastor. And, you know, there's yep. some people in this day that can't handle that. And uh, mm-hmm. I thank God for Betty McBee. She was a faithful servant. So I guess you would say Betty, Betty McBee was someone who uh, helped you, inspired you, I guess, in your first sermon that you delivered, right? Oh, absolutely. What, do you remember? Do you remember what the subject of that sermon was, or what that? What? So, so when when did you, you know, uh, had your? You, I guess a church that you were going to deliver a sermon like this. You know, my first we would go. We would go to a nursing home and have a brief message. And sing, and that was my first actual sermon. Mm-hmm. And my first, my first scripture used was from Matthew six thirty three. Mm-hmm. Seek you first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added unto you. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, and then my my second sermon was from Proverbs: Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and He will direct your paths. And those were two of my earliest scripture usings. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, you know, I've certainly, you know, because I served uh, these churches that have multiple churches, you know, I, I preached, you know, actually somewhere over 3,000 sermons in my career. 3,000? Uh, yes. Huh. What was the size of the con- uh, congregate? Well, I, I have so many questions co- come to mind. I mean, one thing is that you, you've been such an extraordinarily busy man. How are you able to do all of this and at the same time go into the music? And and, and how, did, how did that 
How did you come to, to yeah? Well, you know, of course, I've always loved music, oh. and uh, my as as a child, uh, probably to my parents' chagrin, I got a drum set. Okay. <laughs> and uh, you, you know, a drummer in a in a house that you know, it, it's it's not always a friendly thing. People, people so love I drummers. Started... That's right. People love drummers in the family. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> so I I started out as a drummer. And I've uh, always leaned that way. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, uh, I uh, got really into live music and uh, used to attend lots of uh, bluegrass festivals, mm-hmm. folk festivals, you know, rock festivals, all that, you know, back in the day. And uh, then uh, when I became a Christian, I got really into contemporary Christian music mm-hmm. and, and, uh, and followed uh, a lot of. Uh, great contemporary singers and bands and so on. And then later in life, I was actually uh, in my late 40s. Uh, I went to church and my, I was attending a church in Morgan, West Virginia called Wesley. And Wesley uh, in Memphis had, uh, had a, some music that day and someone was playing a steel drum. Mm-hmm. It was a lead, a lead steel drum. I had never seen one in person. Oh, wow. You, you know, I had heard the sound, but I had never seen one in person. And huh. so this person was playing along, and it was Karen, and she was playing along. And I kept going, like, listen, I can hear this instrument. There's not even a microphone around her. Mm-hmm. And it looked like she wasn't even playing, you know, because our hands are down, in, you know, in the pan. And uh, wow. So after the after the service, I went up and talked to her, and I took a mallet and tapped a couple of times on it, and I, it, you know, it just sparked my interest. So fast forward a few years, there was a sign up at my church that there was going to be steel drum lessons, you know, once a week, fifteen hours a week, or whatever. Mm-hmm. And uh, my and the teacher's name is Chandler Bailey, and I signed up and walked into to uh, my first lesson with about ten other you know first time ever steel drum wannabe players, and uh, I started playing steel drum at age fifty. Wow! And, uh, and it was a, it was definitely a crawl before I could walk and. Uh, hmm. I was privileged. I was privileged to be in a ten-piece band, and uh, we we did like tailgates, uh, churches. We did uh, farmers market type things. We did mm-hmm. uh, uh, art centers, and uh, and our band name was Joyous Noise, and they're still playing oh, in Bordertown, West Virginia. Yeah, yeah. Now they play. You know, I'm down in Highland, down in San Augustine, Florida, but. Mm-hmm. They still play, and, and Chandler Bailey, uh, our teacher and leader, was a uh, uh, was taught by the father of Steel Drum, Ellie Manette. Wow. And Ellie came to retail West Virginia from Trinidad. Wow. And taught Steel Drum at West Virginia University. And it spread, you know, it really, the Steel Drum spread around the world. And, and in many ways, Morgantown, West Virginia, is a Steel Drum mecca. Uh, hmm. Ellie Manette has pa- passed away almost two years ago now, and there's not a steel drummer in the world that doesn't point to Ellie as an influence. And 
I was privileged to play in front of him, and he actually tuned the drums that I had. Oh, wow. So I guess it was while you were in this band, Joyous, uh, no Joyous Noise? Yes. I guess it was while in this band that you got the idea to become, a, I guess, a music producer, or I guess you, you started to... Well, I'll tell you, the, the story on that is, is a good while before that, Horry uh, Town, West Virginia, being a college town, has a lot of local live music. Mm -hmm. And uh, a lot of musicians from you know West Virginia, Pennsylvania, Maryland, Ohio, uh, play you know in a lot of the bars, the clubs, uh, on the campus, so on. And uh, I've just always been drawn to live music, and I, mm -hmm. I love being close to where it's being made. I, if I've got to sit in the back row of a 30,000-seat arena, yeah, it just doesn't mean that much to me. Doesn't and, do it uh, for you. You got to be, you <laughs> yeah, gotta be right, close to right. where the action is, and you can see people. Uh, you can see people yeah. blowing into the into the into the horn or into the, or playing the plucking the yeah, it, the string. Yeah, you, you see their soul. You see their soul. You know, yeah. I mean, you you see you see who's really up there when you're up close to the musician, and you know, you know, you see their love, their passion, and their joy, yeah. and. Uh, so, so I would go places, and, and this couple was playing in a club one night, and it was really noisy, and uh, I actually knew this couple, and uh, I, I just looked at them, and I was sitting as close to them as I could, and I could hardly hear them, hmm. and I just mouthed the words, I'm sorry. Hmm. You know, it was just so loud. And I could just see their countenance was falling because... You know, I know musicians that uh, you know put on a face and all that stuff, mm -hmm. but it still matters. And so, so next morning, which happened on Sunday morning, I went to my church. I'm sitting in this room that has never been used in probably 50 years at Wesley United Methodist Church, and and I'm thinking how bad I felt for those two musicians. And some this, the two girls walked by, and they were whispering. And I could hear them as plain as day in this room. And I looked around at the vaulted ceiling, and it's off in the balcony of the church. And like I say, it was just basically a passageway, but it, it would hold 200 people. And uh, and it just went on my heart right there. Hey, this is a place where people can make music and, and be respected, and, and music can be the focus, mm -hmm. and the musician can, can feel, you know, the appreciation of the audience and so and so forth. And uh, I went to my, my pastor. I was not pastoring that church. I was just attending. And uh, and uh, Pastor Michael said, uh, I took him my idea. And he said, go with it. And uh, a month later, we had our first concert. Mm -hmm. And and we named it Concert in the Lost. And uh, that was about eight years ago now, and it still goes on today. And like I said, I've moved away from there. But, uh, the gentleman, Duncan Warmer, uh, is in charge of that now and still there at Wesley Church in the same place. And, and the church wonderfully bought a, a great sound system for it. And musicians don't have to drag their sound in and out. And it's, uh, it's the first, uh, it's first on the night of the month. And, uh, or second semi-hour, and uh, uh, it's one of those places where if whoever played it always wanted to come back because 
the crowd was so into their music and and there was no talking. There was no, you know, no circus going on in the background. It was all about the music and the yeah. musician. And and they were both gifts from God. Well, that's and, that, that's uh, a, a, that's an ideal uh, situation for both performer and listener. Yeah, to be oh, sure. Perfect. Absolutely. You said it's all about the music and not, as you said, no circus, no circus going on or you know, no foolishness. I guess. Um. um what uh, what comes to your mind having done all these all these things in music and, and mining, and uh, uh, what uh, comes to your mind that that uh, connects all these uh, facets of your life? If you ha- if you had to uh, talk talk think about that or talk about that, um, you know, I, I I really think that common thread of of, of people. Mm-hmm. You know, with, with mining, when you work beside another miner in coal mine, whether you're running a piece of equipment, mm-hmm. or shoveling, or shoveling a, a belt line, or installing roof bolts, or or doing, you know, whatever, ta- whatever task, but when you're working beside another miner, and, and you go underground together with a group of miners, and you come out mm-hmm. at the end of the shift, you know, that camaraderie, that that spirit of, of oneness, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, a friend of mine from New York City, one time well, I was with her, and, and we ran into a guy that I had worked with in the mines, say twenty years earlier. Mm-hmm. And when I saw him, and he saw me, you know, we hugged and we talked, and and and, and she 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 would happen to be in New York, and she said, "You guys loved each other." Mm-hmm. And it's so apparent. I said, absolutely. Yeah. You know, I mean, we we trusted each other. We worked together. Sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, my decision, you know, if someone was counting on me making the right decision, I was counting on them, you know, to be like for out. And so the truth of it is, is it's that bond uh, of people the same way in ministry. I mean, when I was... When I was pastoring, you know, that privilege to be with families who were going through difficult times, that, that privilege of going through families, you know, when, when their daughter or son is getting married, or, or being at the bedside of that, you know, 89 year old person who's been a, a witness and a, just a, a, a glorious person to so many people, seeing them take their last breath and knowing that peace that they have, mm. uh, you know, that that's that same thread, that love, that camaraderie, that, that we were one. And and then in, in the same way in music, I mean, my, when I played in, in Joyous Noise, uh, my heart, that band was my heart, and, and, and I felt like I was theirs. And uh, that was one of my hardest things to give up when I retired to move us to Mm-hmm. Not have that band to be a part of. Just being, and it turned out our last concert that we had together was probably the best one that we had ever played. And uh, I, mm-hmm. I, I still look back on it and think that was one of the holiest moments I've ever had that night with, mm-hmm. with my band. Was, we, we only played one gospel song, Amazing Grace. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the, but. We we were playing in the Randolph uh, County uh, Arts Center in Elkins, West Virginia, and uh, 
was a former Catholic church and mm-hmm. and all those things. But but it was such a holy time because we were all in one accord. Mm-hmm. And and we get we gave it our best. It was the best gig in my time with them, and and uh, and so so uh, all that that common thread, that love for one another, mm-hmm. that you know that binds us together, and that that calls us to brings out the best in us. That's right, Carrie. This is uh, all, this has been a beautiful episode because uh, we're talking about all the different dimensions of human life. Um, as you say, coming together uh, in, in one in one person's life, in your life, and I, I really um, I hate to say goodbye, <laughs> but um, <laughs> thank you for all, time. I really do appreciate it. All all good things, even good things, have to come to an end. And um, I really enjoyed having you on our journey of an esthete because this is um this episode is is. Uh, I would say is emblematic of the spirit of of our show, and it was really great you, you sharing sharing your story with us. I really appreciate it. Well, it's been my privilege, and uh, I'll be looking forward to uh, getting to meet you in person someday. And uh, yes, that's going to happen. You, Thank I, you. I Karen. wish you God's very best. Okay. Thank you, Karen Lily. Thank you.
I don't like goodbyes. So I'll see you soon, folks. Thank you. Thank you.